called Colliding in East Tyrone, Historical Manufacturing Base of Mid-Ulster, which is a community initiative being delivered by the Loch Ness Partnership. This week's podcast is a little different. For our first three editions, we had present-day historians and academics discussing East Tyrone and the historical links to place names, people and landscapes of the past. In this edition, we actually have the unique opportunity to hear what it was like to live and work here almost two centuries ago, told to us in the words of a Tyrone man born at Donachmoor in 1823. What we are about to hear is a brief memoir of James Brown spoken by an actor. His account mentions everything from famine to breweries and illicit stills, and it offers us a wonderful insight into the day-to-day lives of our ancestors. James's father had been a weaver before opening a bakery and later a successful soap and candle making business. As the family prospered, James also bought a large farm and became a leading figure in the promotion of modern agricultural techniques. He was active in local government and was appointed a Justice of the Peace in 1879. James ran the family soap making business until his last days and he died on the 17th of August 1907, aged 84. James Brown's words were dictated to his daughter Nora in the winter of 1904. The original document is held in the archive at the Public Records Office of Northern Ireland under catalogue reference T2279-2 and we are very grateful to the Records Office for their permission to reproduce it for our podcast. The words of James Brown are spoken by Connor Bagley. I was born on July the 25th, 1823, in the old house in Donoghmore, now a part of the soapworks. My father was David Brown, son of John Brown, who married Mrs. McClelland and lived in Mullockmore. Ms. McClelland's brother married my grandfather's sister and also lived in Mullockmore. My father had one brother, John, who lived in Irish Street and carried on a bakery. He married Miss Jane McDowell. My mother was Betty, daughter of Henry King of Middleton in County Monaghan. When first married, my parents lived in a small house in Mullockmore. It's since pulled down and afterwards in a house in Donoghmore opposite the chapel. Then they moved to the house where I was born. They had ten children. Mary, who married Richard Tenner. Henry, married Jane Carr. Anne and Thomas, who died in childhood. Margaret married Henry Oliver. Eliza married Robert Smith. Jane married Thomas Lisburn. Amelia married Joseph Atchison. Isabella married John Beatty and myself, who married Jane Ellen Nicholson. The first thing I can remember is a servant of ours, Mary Mullen, going to America on St. Patrick's Day, 1828. She and the rest of her party drove to Belfast in a cart to sail thence to America. They took with them the provisions for the journey, chiefly oat cakes, as then was the custom. 
The outward voyage averaged 30 days, but occasionally was six or seven weeks. And on these occasions, provisions ran short and the poor people were in danger of starvation. Another early recollection is being taken into a darkened bedroom to see a little playfellow who was ill of smallpox, there being little knowledge of the risk of infection then. My first teacher was Mr Richard Robinson, whose school was in the space now planted with trees behind the cross. It was then the only school in the village. Later, I had lessons at home from Mr Stewart, who taught in the RC school in Dungannon. After leaving the village school, I was sent to my sister Mary Tanner in Perry Street, where her husband had a grocer's shop and I attended a school kept by two teachers from the south of Ireland, Mr Murphy and Mr Reardon. Afterwards, I lived with my sister Margaret in Church Street, where her husband carried on a saddlery trade, and I went to Mr Birch's school on the Castle Hill. I remained here until I was nearly 13, when in the summer of 1836, I went to the Reverend John Blackley School in Monaghan. Here I stayed until I was sent for to come to the deathbed of my father on the 17th of November, 1837. He died on the 22nd of November, but I did not return to school. But I went into business with my brother and Donald Moore. Previous to the year 1816, my father was engaged in the linen trade, giving out homespun yarn and getting it woven in hand looms in the cottages. At that time, a good deal of the linen trade was transacted in Dublin, not Belfast, probably in consequence of better banking facilities. My father used to go to Dublin to sell his linen in company of other merchants. They rode on horseback in parties for protection from highwaymen, the journey to Dublin occupying three days. In later years, when the linen trade in Belfast had increased, Buyers for the bleachers came to Dungannon every Thursday and took their places on the standings on the east side of the square where the farmers brought the webs woven by their families and servants. The standings were benches with boards in front of them on which the webs were thrown for examination. When the price was arranged, the buyer put his mark on it and the seller took it to Mr Robert Tenner in Perry Street who measured it. He got a few pence for each web measured in consideration for which he supplied the buyers with dinner. Travellers then wishing to go to Belfast used to leave Dungannon at 4am on a long car which took them by the Moy and like all to Porta Down. Here they joined John Byers' coach running between Armagh and Belfast reaching the latter place about 1pm. During the war with Napoleon prices for agricultural produce were high but the peace of 1815 was followed by a time of great depression partly caused by two bad seasons a very wet summer and a very dry one. During the latter, the corn was so short, it could not be raped in the usual way, but had to be pulled. The depression in the linen trade caused my father to open a bakery in Donnockmore, and I remember his telling me that the first flour he used was American, and cost four guineas a barrel. About the year 1820, partly from the wish to find employment for an old and respected friend, my father conceived the idea of beginning soap and candle making. This being before the days of railways, the materials were brought chiefly by canal, either to Moy or Kalyland, except in that was produced locally. In those years of the last century, each market town had one or more tanyards and a candle factory, sometimes including soap works. Now, in the following century, the soap trade has left those country towns and settled in the seaport, so that the Donnetmore factory is the only country one still working in Ireland. There used to be two tanyards in Dungannon, one in Berra, 
three in Oma and several in Straban and Derry. But that business has practically ceased in Ireland after centering in Dublin for a time. Another extinct industry is the making of nails, which was carried on by the Hodgett's father and son until a comparatively recent date. Each nail was made separately with the hammer of small iron rods supplied for the purpose. These nails cost four pence to eight pence per hundred, according to size. Now they're made by machinery at a quarter the price. The open window of the nailer's shop was a very favourite spot at which to linger and Shanna, watching him busily hammering and chopping off the nails and giving the cracks of the village without pausing at his work. <laughs> Few people nowadays would know what a shelling hill was. This was a usual adjunct to the country corn mill of my young day. The oats were dried in the kiln and after shelling were filed into a sack. This was thrown over a horse's back and taken to the nearest rising ground where the chaff was removed by the wind. After this process, which is now superseded by the use of fans, the winnowed grain was refilled into the sack and taken back to the mill to be ground into meal. When I was a boy, my father began to make mould candles in addition to the dips which were the first candles made. The old process of making dips was a very slow one, one man only making about 20 dozen pound a day. With improved appliances, a man afterwards could make 80 dozen pound. In those days, tallow alone was used, but in later years, paraffin wax has supplanted it and dip candles are no longer made. Rush lights also were made and used as night lights. They gave a small, slowly burning light the partially peeled rush taking the place of Candlewick. A strip of peel was left on each side of the rush and the ends of these strips being knotted. They were suspended from the dipping rods by this means. The wicks for the dips were made of flax tow, which was loosely spun by women and after boiling with alkali was bleached on the grass. This made a very rough wick. Later cotton was used, it being supplied from Manchester ready for use. Prior to LeBlanc's discovery of the process of producing alkali from salt, barilla or kelp was used in soap making. The kelp was made on the seashore and brought inland to the factories. In Castlefin, where the Mr's Baird had a soap works in the early part of the last century, an autumn morning would find the fair green crowded with horses, laden with the creels of kelp brought from the northwest coast of Donegal to supply these works. Russia was the main source of imported tallow, and barilla was also brought from the Mediterranean. When the soap works was started, Mr Martin, the traveller for the brewery, introduced our manufacturers on his journeys and brought orders from Oma, Enniskillen, etc., which assisted us considerably. Afterwards, Mr William Irwin and Mr John Clark travelled for the firm, an occupation which I took up at about 1842. As this was before the days of railways, I drove my own horse and gig once a month through Tyrone and Fermanagh, also parts of Armagh and Derry. In this way, I became well acquainted with these districts and with our customers. During the early years of my business career, our principal competitors were in Belfast. The chief makers there were Mr Finlay McGreer and Mr Glenfield. Locally, we had Mr John Shillington of Portadown and later on Robert McClellan in Dungannon, while George and Robert, sons of Mr John Tanner, started to make soap and candles at Moree. This came to an end in a few months, however. Robert McClelland had a tannery and also sold tea in the same districts which he visited, so he was a serious competitor. He and his nephew Joseph removed to Belfast later on, but afterwards returned to Dungannon 
and built the spinning mill, now Mr. Hale and Martin's. Up to the opening of the railway in 1865, our goods were entirely delivered by our own carters. Until 1830, we had no post office. See, letters were brought from Nungannon by a messenger to the brewery, and he also carried those for the village. The mail coach from Dublin to Coleraine brought letters to Dungannon. In my boyhood, there was no place of worship in Donatmore, but the chapel of which Friar Conwell was priest. Reverend Thomas Corbendale was rector of this parish, and Reverend Robert Fraser was his curate, the parish church being in Castle Caulfield. The Chapel of Ease in Donatmore was built in 1836 or 1838 through the influence of Mr. Mackenzie, who up till then had been a Presbyterian and attended First Dungannon, of which church Reverend Mr. Bennett was First Minister. The church in Donatmore was enlarged and altered during Reverend James McNeese's incumbency about 1866. The levelling of tithes caused a very bitter feeling, so much so that on one occasion a mob of angry Protestant parishioners surrounded the Glebe House threatening to hang the rector on one of his own trees. About 1835, the law was altered, so that the landlord paid the tithe, being empowered to add it to the rent. Father McGuckian was a parish priest who rebuilt the chapel in 1845. My father always lived on very good terms with his RC neighbours. As an instance on this, on one occasion, when the weather looked threatening, the priest gave him the use of the chapel as a temporary store for the corn. A funeral had to take place in the morning before his offer could be taken advantage of, and as the skies were overcast, Friar Conwell more than once anxiously went to the top of the hill, overlooking the road by which the funeral was to come. At last, he came back to my father. Here they are, he said, coming as if they were on their way to the gallows. The funeral took place, and the corn was safely housed in the chapel before the storm. In October 1845 came the first potato blight. We had a field of potatoes that year on the back lane and in one night they were struck with the blight and both tops and roots were blackened. The damage done in '45 was only partial, that is to say, only a portion of the country was affected and the blight didn't strike the plants until the crop was almost matured. Only a part could be used for food and the rest were given to the pigs or used to mix starch. We put up a small machine to grind them and extract the farina and for this purpose, they still served very well. On the night of the 3rd of August, 1846, came the bad potato blight. I remember driving to Bendorn through County Fermanagh with my sister Bella on August the 3rd. And as we went, seeing the fine crops of potatoes in the fields, we spent three days in Bendorn and returning, found the same crops blackened and useless. The same state of affairs prevailed practically over the whole of Ireland, and in consequence, 1847 was the famine year. It was felt severely here, but nothing like so much so as it was in the south and in the west. Indian corn and meal were introduced for the first time from America, and I remember the poor people coming into the shop and asking to see this yellow meal. They would then take some in their hand, ostensibly to look at it as a novelty, but really to satisfy their hunger with it. It was an anomaly of this time that oaten and Indian meal rose as high in price as fine flour, owing to the fact that, as porridge, meal could be used more economically than flour and bread. A committee was formed in Donatmore which met in the schoolhouse at the Cross and contributions were raised for the relief of the worst cases. In other parts, works were begun, such as cutting hills on roads, 
but they were found a wasteful and useless means of relief and eventually the government made a grant of several million pounds to be used directly to supply the starving people with food. The fever followed the famine and broke out even in the emigrant ships on which the poor people were flying to America. These were sailing vessels and far inferior in speed and comfort to those now used and many of the passengers never reached the other continent. Those who did were taken to an hospital near the Battery, New York, and there numbers died of the fever they had contracted before leaving Ireland. The fever was not so rife here as further west and south, but I remember feeling nervous about it when in Inniskillen, for two of our oldest customers there contracted the disease and died. They sold meal and bread, and probably the poor starving people who came to seek for food had brought the infection. Wages were very low prior to the 47 famine. Four shillings a week was the usual wages for a labouring man. My father always paid his men five shillings. Some farmers gave their men food instead of wages, and I was told by a man in Oma of a neighbour of his who hired his men on these terms, but would not feed them on Sundays and give them a penny instead. Servant girls were paid as low as five shillings a quarter, but from May to November, when food was dear, many were glad to work for their board without any wages. After the famine, emigration increased largely, and wages have never been so low since. The Donnockmore Brewery was owned by Mr Alexander Mackenzie, who lived in Mullygruen, and by my uncle, Mr James King, who lived in the cottage. He was one of my mother's three brothers, Alexander, who married Miss Trumbull, and lived in Monaghan, and Henry, who became a doctor in the Navy, being the other. James married Mrs Trimble of Clogher, on retiring from the Navy, Henry married and lived in Castle Caulfield, in the house now occupied by Mr David Atchison. My mother had two sisters, one married William Scroggy and the other Hugh Weir. The brewery was such a prosperous concern that I remember 28 carts loaded with beer and whiskey leaving it in a single morning. Mr Calhoun, who came as a bookkeeper afterwards, became a partner in the business, together with Mr George Slevin, who was a nephew of Mr Mackenzie's and lived in Nungenon where they had another brewery on the site of the present railway station. In my recollection, it was not used as a brewery, but the buildings were turned into a corn store. Part of the premises now used by Mr Dickinson as a weaving factory were then a distillery owned by Mr John Falls. In 1841, Mr Falls opposed Lord Northland as parliamentary representative for Dungannon, and although the latter retained his seat, a very bitter spirit was roused. The women drapers of Dungannon having sided with Falls, the local gentry boycotted them and bought their goods from Silas Weir of Cookstown. This boycotting affected some so severely that they had to emigrate to America, among those being Henry Oliver and Richard Tenner. And though this seemed a hardship at the time, the families of both succeeded much better in America than they ever could have done in Ireland. The Presbyterian minister of Castle Caulfield was the Reverend John Bridge, who held his services in the old meeting house which had been one of the outbuildings of the castle. He became very unpopular, owing to his having failed to attend the Yoma Assizes to give a character to a man called Ritchie, who was tried and afterwards hanged for murder. It was a party quarrel, and he was said to have struck with a spade shaft the man who was killed. In consequence of this, Mr Bridge left Castle Caulfield and was succeeded by the Reverend Joseph Atchison, who married my sister Amelia. He preached at the old castle until he built the present meeting house in 1841. 
the curate of Castle Caulfield at this time was the Reverend Robert Hamilton, an excellent man who worked very devotedly for the spiritual and temporal well-being of his people. John Wesley visited Castle Caulfield on one of his tours in Ireland, and my grandmother, who was a godly woman, took my father, then a little boy, to hear him preach there. The circumstance impressed him very much, and the seed then sown did not fall on stony ground. There were two doctors in Donatmore, Dr O'Neill and Dr Corr. The former had retired from the Navy and didn't practice much. He lived in a cottage on the site in which Ivybank was afterwards built. Dr Corr was the general practitioner and a Roman Catholic. He was followed by Dr McMullen and Dr McLean. Ms McLean and Ms Corr assisted their husbands in their practice and continued it after they became widows. Both were celebrated for pulling teeth. Ms Corr was said to have removed an inch and a quarter of Thomas Hodgett's jawbone, along with a tooth one day. <laughs> in later years, Dr Henry of Primroy had a considerable practice in this neighbourhood, Dr Neville of Dungannon being a dispensary doctor. When anyone in my young day required a suit, he took the tailor with him to a cloth shop and together they chose the stuff and it was taken home by the tailor to make up. In the same way, the shoemaker went with the customer who required boots or shoes and helped him to choose a piece of leather of which to make them. In the country, there were no shops where ready-made goods could be had. The shoemaker in Donatmore used to make chief shoes and take them to Dungannon to the market where they were sold on the street. It was a common sight to see the women on a market day sitting down at the foot of the gallows hill to wash their feet in the little stream before putting on the shoes and stockings they had carried so far and which they only intended to wear in the town. There was then a court for the recovery of small debts, called the Seneschal's Court, which was held monthly in Donnelly's public house. Daniel Mackenzie was the Seneschal, and he called a jury of twelve men to help him to adjudicate, and it was said he looked under the table to see which man had brogues on, before deciding who should be foreman. The fees or costs were largely spent in drink for the good of the public house, of which there were five in Dannockmore and two at the back ford. These courts ceased when the county court was established. People here often date from the time of the big wind. That was the 5th of January 1839. It unroofed the brewery coolers and did much damage elsewhere. When George Mulholland came to his work the next morning, someone asked him how he put in the night, knowing he had a thatched cottage. Ah, all right, said he. I just slept on the roof to keep it on. <laughs> About 1845, Daniel O'Connell was at the height of his popularity. A comical illustration of this I had when talking with a man in Berra, a small grocer who was a great admirer of his. He told me O'Connell had attended Oma Assizes as a barrister on one occasion and that he had ridden into Oma, six miles off that he might see Dan. He stood about the courthouse steps until he had the opportunity to shake him by the hand. In telling the story to me afterwards, he held his right hand aloft and said empathetically, and I never put that hand into a herring barrel since. <laughs> Illicit distillation was very prevalent then, so much so that my mother told me on one occasion the military came to Middleton and seized 22 stills. It is easy to understand what a demoralising effect such a state of things must have entailed. as part of the project called Cal Island and East Tyrone Historical Manufacturing Base at Mid-Ulster, which is a community initiative being delivered by Loch Ness Partnership. It is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund under the Great Place Scheme Grant Programme. 
Additional funding has also been secured from the Mid-Ulster District Council. Other partners in the scheme include the Crack Theatre, Queen's University and various local businesses and community agencies. Music